Good morning, Redeemer. Uh, man, we're missing a lot of people this morning. This is kind of crazy. Uh, I greet you in the name of Christ our Lord, who is the head of our church, this church. Uh, we are the bride of Christ, and he is the head of us. Uh, I'm so excited to be preaching to you today, and I'm excited to be a part of this body. Emily and I regularly talk about how kind God was to place us in this body, especially when he placed us in this body. I grew up in this area, and um, I can honestly say that this body is absolutely unique to this area, and it is a blessing to this area, and I am praying that we will be able to proclaim God's word in this region. If you would, turn your Bibles to Revelation 21. We'll be reading from Revelation 21, 1 through 8. As most of you know here at Redeemer and the visitors who don't, we've been going through 1 Thessalonians over the past few months. Um, Phil and Joey have been preaching through 1 Thessalonians. And, and the title of the series was called uh, Until He Comes. And the reason it's called Until He Comes is because in this book, in this letter to this church in Thessalonica, Paul is encouraging the believers in the return of Christ. He's helping the, un- the, the Thessalonians to understand what the return of Christ means for the Christian life for them right then, and even for us today. He also encourages the believers of this church to encourage other believers in the return of our Christ. Uh, We're going to continue into 2 Thessalonians next week, uh, but today I want to encourage you in the coming of our Lord like Paul wanted us to in Thessalonians. I'm going to encourage you in the coming of the Lord by telling you what will take place for us as believers when he comes and takes the church to himself. Today, my goal is to encourage the church to persevere because our heritage is heaven. I want to encourage you today to persevere because our inheritance is heaven. So before I read the text, before I begin, I want to give a little bit of context for the book Revelation. If you were here for our read night, you would have heard uh, the whole book of Revelation read out loud. And I don't see many people that were here for that night because, like Phil said, 80% of our body is out sick. Um, But if you you were here that night, you would have have seen the cycle of uh, judgment, holy judgment, salvation, and rejoicing. The book of Revelation was written by the last living apostle, John, on an island of Patmos where he had been banished for preaching the gospel to the Ephesians. While he was there, he was visited by the Holy Spirit and uh, told to write this down for the benefit and the instruction of the church. And this, this, this book was addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, these churches were facing different trials, and it seems like most of them were around false teaching and heresy and physical and, and um, even financial persecution. And uh, they were surrounded by a pagan culture that was constantly telling them to give in to their temptations. And some of them started to do this. Some of them started to give in to false teaching. Some of them started to uh, adopt pagan rituals and sacrifices. And John is writing this letter to say, first of all, hold to what is true. Hold fast to what Scripture has told you. He's also writing this letter to tell them that your persecution will get worse. It's, it's not something that's going to be temporary. While you're on this earth, you will face persecution. And be faithful. 
Don't compromise to false teaching and don't compromise on sin. In fact, he goes so far to say, be faithful unto death and Jesus will be your reward. So hold fast until he, ret- until he returns. And like I said a minute ago, we see this cycle of judgment, salvation, and rejoicing all throughout the book of Revelation. We see the judgment that Jesus has on the earth. He comes and he, he rightfully judges the earth of its wickedness and its sin. And we see the salvation and deliverance of those who were faithful unto death and those whose faith was in the Lord. And then we see many times the rejoicing of heavenly beings, martyred saints, and the ransomed church singing praises to His Son, Jesus Christ. Judgment, salvation, rejoicing. That is the cycle we see throughout Revelation through the whole book. Now, if you have read Revelation all the way through, you know that uh, there are many, many characters and situations that happen, and there are also many people today that have come up with many, many unhelpful conspiracies about the book Revelation. I'm not going to be touching on any of those today. Uh, Like I said, they're unhelpful. Um, But we see a lot of things like natural disasters and and the Antichrist and dragons and um, locusts and pestilence and war. Uh, and out of all these characters and events of the book of Revelation, it's so important to, to remember that this book was written to the church that is being persecuted, and it was written for its instruction and benefit. Out of all the characters and events of this book, the main character of this book is Jesus. It is the Lamb who was standing as if it had been slain that Phil read about earlier. So the the passage we're reading today is at the tail end of this book where we see God making everything new. The judgment of the earth is complete, and those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life have finally received their reward. Let's look at the passage, 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he said, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. When we read this passage, what we are given is an image. We see a new heaven and a new earth replacing this earth and the old heaven. Uh, We see the the bride of Christ, his church, being prepared for him. 
that will be prepared for him. We get to see God dwelling with us, him being our God and us being his people. We see that pain and mourning has been eliminated because anything that can cause pain and mourning will have passed away because God is making all things new. And we see that God will freely give the water of the spring of life to those who thirst. And we will be satisfied. I want to encourage you today to persevere because we are being prepared. I want to encourage you today to persevere because one day we will dwell with God. And I want to encourage you today to persevere because our thirst will be quenched. My first point today is I want to encourage you to persevere because we are being prepared. Let's look back at the text, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. We see in verse 1 and 2 the new heaven and new earth that will replace the old heaven and old earth, which at this point, this earth will have been basically wrecked by plagues, according to what we read in Revelation. Uh, Plagues, natural disaster, wars, pestilence, to the point where there's really no beauty left in it. There's no way to survive on this earth and have any type of joy. We see a new earth coming down, which probably looks a lot like the Garden of Eden. Just gorgeous, having everything we need. And then we also see the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And the reason that we see this New Jerusalem coming down, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, is because she is a bride. This New Jerusalem is the bride of Jesus. This holy city is the church. This is us. We are the New Jerusalem. We are the church. Look with me at verse 9 and 10. We didn't read it, but it's just below where we stopped. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. This is us. We are the bride of Christ. And like Phil read in chapter 5 from Revelation, when, when John was trying to describe God, if you continue reading, you will see some of the same precious jewels and precious stones that described God. You'll see carnelian and jasper and amethyst and gold and pearl. And this is obviously symbolic of the beauty and perfection that the church will have taken on when Christ ransoms his church to himself. When he comes back and takes the church to himself, we will be made perfect. We see in verse 2 that we, the church, have been prepared as a bride on her wedding day. I remember mine and Emily's wedding day. Um, we got engaged in December and married in April on April 30th, 2016. Um, and we had prepared, we, we, I think we had, we had four months between our wedding day and the day I, that I proposed. 
and uh, we had gone and looked at suits, and I had found one that I liked, and it was a blue suit. It was tailored to fit me. I was wearing, uh, I went and bought a Johnson & Murphy belt, which is a fine leather maker. Um, I went and bought shoes. I get the whole nine yards. I woke up that the morning of our wedding day, and I took a shower, and I fixed my hair, which I had more of then. And I trimmed my beard, and I had my neckline perfect, and I looked good. I'm, I mean, I, I drove to the, the venue very stiff because I did not want to wrinkle anything I was wearing. And But what I remember about my wedding day is not how I looked. Even though I did look good and we have pictures to prove it, that's not what I remember. What I remember about my wedding day is the first view I had of my, my bride. Um, they came and got me and said, all right, we're going to do the reveal. And I walked in the room, and there she was, and she was wearing that white dress, and my mind was blown. And she had help. You know, I woke up and did all this by myself, and uh, after seeing her, I thought, you know, I probably look kind of like a chump. But she had help. Her sisters helped her do her hair and her makeup, and someone had to help her get in that dress. And she had prepared more intensely that day than she had any other day that we had dated. And uh, I was just floored by her beauty. Beloved, that's what's happening to us right now. We are being prepared. And how are we being prepared? We're being prepared by trials. When we enter into a season of life that is characterized by suffering or difficulty or heartache, and we respond by an ever-increasing love and faithfulness and God's efficiency, we are being prepared. When Christ is our hope in the face of opposition, we're being prepared. We're being prepared through sanctification. We're being prepared by the practical obedience of God's law. And even we're being prepared through our good deeds. We're being prepared through loving and caring for each other and the least of these, the orphans and the widows and the homeless. We see in Revelation 19, you don't have to turn there, but we see a bride preparing herself. It says in Revelation 19, Verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now I want to be clear right now that uh, I'm not preaching a works-based righteousness. Uh, We're not saved by our righteous deeds. We're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our righteous deeds are and come through the fruits of the Spirit, which please the Lord, which is why we're called to do these things. God grants the church to clothe herself with fine linen, to characterize the true church, the true bride, whose life is characterized by righteous deeds and faith in Christ. We are preparing ourselves by desiring and pursuing purity, obedience, and sacrificially loving and serving each other. And we are prepared. The church should be characterized by the fruits of the spirits, but it will not enter into heaven because of it. Let me make that clear. We will not enter into heaven because of our good deeds. It is only by Jesus' work on the cross that we are counted righteous. We are being prepared more and more as a bride when we look more and more like our husband, Jesus Christ. Be encouraged, church, because Jesus is preparing you. 
when you're struggling with a chronic illness or pain, remember that you're being prepared. When you lose a family member to death, remember that you're being prepared. When you're ridiculed or mocked because of your faith, remember that you're being prepared. And lean into this preparation so that you can rejoice when you are fully prepared. Persevere, church, because Jesus is preparing you. We also see that we are being prepared by Jesus for Jesus. We went through a series last year through John, and we read in chapter 14, verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. So we're not prepared yet. Jesus hasn't come back. We're in this, we're in this um, age or this stage of tension where Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, and one day he will come back and take us to himself. We're in what some people, some theologians call uh, the already but not yet, meaning we already enjoy the things uh, of the children of God. like We enjoy being adopted as children by God. We already have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Our sins have already been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. God already sees us as his son when he looks at us because of Jesus' work on the cross. But we are still imperfect sinners with a flesh that is constantly in battle with the Spirit. On that day, when Jesus returns, we will have complete sanctification and we will be fully prepared. Everything this side of heaven Everything we're experiencing now here on this earth is preparing us to dwell with Christ. It is preparing us to dwell with God. The work of perseverance will be both hard and joyful. We know this. We as humans experience joy every day, and we experience pain every day. But this perseverance is worth it. Why is it worth it? Because one day we will dwell with God. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Second point. This sermon is persevere because we will dwell with God. Here at Redeemer, we're very aware of suffering. We have members who suffer every day from chronic illnesses. We have members who have family members who do not trust in Jesus, which cause a different type of pain and anguish. Some of you have maybe even recently been ridiculed because of your faith or your, your stance on something that is influenced or informed by your faith. We have members that go to work for 40 hours a week and see the result of sin in the world. We have nurses. I'm a nurse, and I go to work, and I get to see people healing from surgeries and sicknesses. That's the result of sin. I want to remind us today that the reason that we experience these things, death, pain, sickness, heartache, persecution, is because of sin. It's because of the, fir- the, the actions of our first parents in the garden 
that we experience these things. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and there had been no disobedience or deceit, there was no sin. When they were deceived by the serpent and chose their will over the explicit commandment of God, we see sin, pain, suffering, and heartache enter into the world. And because God and sin are mutually exclusive, we lost our privilege to dwell with God. And that's what's keeping us from dwelling with God. Now be encouraged because through Christ we do have a peaceful communion with Him. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We have Him interceding for us at the throne. We can pray to Him. We do have communion, and it's peaceful, but it's not perfect. It's not what it was meant to be. Ever since that day in the garden, it has been strained. But when Christ comes and we are fully prepared, we shall dwell with God. We will be His people, and He will be with us as our God. We will dwell finally, in perfect communion with God. This alone should fill you with joy, knowing that one day we will dwell with God. This is, it should excite you. You should be excited. This should cause you to rejoice. The fact that one day we'll dwell with God and we won't feel like we're in this dark place or this fog where God can't see us and we can't see God and we don't know, like, is God hearing my prayers? But we will have 100% access to God. And that access comes with benefits. Listen to me read this verse. I've read it so many times, and every time I read it, it, it hits me right in the stomach. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 22 days from now will be the one-year anniversary of our daughter's birth. As most of you know, uh, we found out 20 weeks into Emily's pregnancy that our daughter had a condition called anencephaly, which kept the top of her skull from forming. We were told that most likely she would not live outside the womb for very long if she made it uh, to full delivery. We had her for a total of 37 weeks. Emily carried her for 37 weeks, and we, we got to um, feel her move and kick and punch and flip, and we cherished every moment of that. I remember one night, Emily's pregnant belly was against my back, and uh, I felt Evelyn kick me right in the kidneys. And uh, it was probably one of my favorite memories of that whole, that whole time. Uh, but eventually, we've, we stopped feeling her move, and, and they had to induce labor. And a lot of you were here for the, the funeral, and you sang with us, and you grieved, you grieved with us, and you cried with us, and you prayed with us, and uh, we're very thankful for you. But we had to have a funeral for our daughter. She never saw the light of day. She, she never experienced her mom. She never experienced her dad. We never really experienced her the way it was intended to be. We experienced death and mourning, and pain. And we're not the only ones in this body that have experienced this. Some of y'all live in constant pain, physical pain. Some of y'all have conditions that constantly remind you of the fact that you will not live forever. Some of y'all suffer from severe anxiety or have emotional scars that cause you pain every day. Redeemer, hear me say this. He will wipe away every tear 
There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning or crying. There will be no more pain. The curse of sin and its effects on you will be eliminated. Persevere, church, because one day we will dwell with God. All of our sickness, all of our chronic and acute pain, all of our heartache and sadness will be deleted from our thoughts. And our only priority will be worshiping the name of our Father. The very same believers that were at our daughter's funeral, grieving and mourning with us, will be the very same believers who will be worshiping with us in heaven. That's a beautiful image. Right now, we get to carry the burden with each other and love each other. And one day, we'll be in heaven and there will be no distraction from our worship of God. That's what we're going to do. That's what He's going to do. He's going to make all things new. We see it in verse 5. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God is starting over with creation. That's what we see here. This is a new, perfectly created heaven and earth, and we know it is because God will dwell there, and the church will be made new. We will have new bodies that will be impervious to disease. There will be no church services where 50% of the congregation are missing because of the flu. All the sanctuaries will be full, and and we'll, we'll have no distractions. Will be impervious to temptation because the accuser will be have, will have been thrown into the lake of fire, and there will be no more pain and no more death. Persevere because we'll be new, we'll be made new. Persevere because we'll be restored to perfection. My third point is persevere because our thirst will be quenched. Let's look at verse 5 again. I'm going to start in the middle of verse 5 and go the rest of the way. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. Heaven belongs to those who thirst. And the Alpha and the Omega freely gives a drink to those who thirst. He freely and joyfully gives the water of life to those who are seeking restoration. He freely and joyfully gives water to those who ask. He freely and joyfully gives water to those who understand their need for the water of life. I was talking to my wife about this point last night, actually, uh, and it reminded her of a moment from the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I don't know how many of y'all have read the Chronicles of Narnia. I think most of our homeschool kids are out, so probably fewer than normal. Um, But from the book, The Silver Chair, a character named Jill, who is a pretty selfish little girl, she hasn't really come to herself yet, and Aslan's going to help her get there, so don't worry about it. But a character named Jill found herself alone in a new world, uh, completely unknown to her, and she was suffering from thirst after laying eyes on Aslan. She had not done anything to make her 
really need to drink. She wasn't walking through a desert and found herself parched. She saw Aslan the lion, who is an unmistakable Christ figure in the series. I'm going to read this moment to you. The birds had ceased singing, and there was perfect silence except for one small persistent sound, which seemed to come from a good distance away. She listened carefully and felt almost sure it was the sound of running water. Jill got up and looked around her very carefully. There was no sign of a lion, but there were so many trees about that it might, be, it might easily be quite close without her seeing it. For all she knew, there might be several lions. But her thirst was very bad now, and she plucked up courage to go and look for that running water. She went on tiptoe, stealing cautiously from tree to tree and stopping to peer around her at every step. The wood was so still that it was difficult to decide the sound where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment, and sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned to stone with her mouth wide open, and she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. This lion is Aslan. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away, as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have, he, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she couldn't be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt that she would not mind being eaten by the lion if she could just be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you are thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she had heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second, she stared there, here and there, wondering who had spoken. And the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in the other world, and she realized that it was a lion speaking. It was a deeper, wilder, stronger, sort of heavy golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl, as if Jill gazed at its motion as and as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promises, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now, without noticing it, she had come a step closer. Do you eat girls, said Jill. I have swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say it as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. 
You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Now, I love the Chronicles of Narnia. And my wife was spot on to think of this when I asked her about this point. Everyone is born with a thirst. For some it's adventure, for some it's money, for some it's fame, for some it's comfort. Some people are just content to seek what they desire their whole life and actually never find contentment. And those people will endlessly search for that satisfaction and they will have no success. Believers have a thirst that can be quenched. We have a thirst that has been quenched. Though we're not home yet, we are satisfied in Christ. He is our satisfaction. We live with the knowledge that our thirst can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ. Our thirst is quenched in Christ, and we will dwell in heaven with our most satisfying Savior. We will have access to this water, this satisfying thing, every moment. We also see in verse 7 that heritage is a heaven is that heaven is a heritage to those who conquer. Let's look at verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. When we read the word conquer here or some of your bibles may say overcome, we often think of warriors like uh, Braveheart or Patriot or any Mel Gibson movie where he takes vengeance on his family, really. Um, We think of athletes who have overcome natural deformities and and made it to the NFL. We think of CEOs or politicians that have uh, overcome extreme adversity in the workplace or those around them. And that's not unlike the believers that we read about in Revelations that this letter is actually written to. These people are going to overcome extreme adversity. Though it doesn't look like starting a small militia to overthrow the Roman government and establish a Christian nation in Asia Minor. That's not what it looks like. It often looks like being martyred with your faith fully intact. And that's what happened. Believers were being killed. It often looked like being an outcast and treated less than human. Conquering looked like hearing heresy and standing up for truth or denying that heresy boldly. When we read the word overcome, we should think about these believers overcoming their fear of death with the thought of Jesus giving them the crown of life. We should envision these believers overcoming the temptation to be lukewarm and to fit in with the surrounding culture, but instead choosing to live a life of godliness in a culture that hated God. All of those examples still apply today. Though the persecution here in America doesn't quite look like what it did in the Roman Empire in the first century, we still have to stand up and denounce heresy. We still are subject to verbal ridicule. We are constantly being told to compromise our beliefs and convictions from people who even claim to be believers to fit into the society and be more palatable. We are always tempted to be silent on issues that matter, so we're not called bigots. We're tempted to tone down our beliefs so that we don't seem so radical. We're tempted to not try not to stand out in the workplace. But heaven belongs to those who overcome. Heaven belongs to those who conquer. Heaven belongs to those who persevere. Once again, I'm not preaching a works-based righteousness here. 
Our reward for conquering or overcoming is to be in the presence of our King. Jesus promises us the crown of life and a spot with Him on His throne. This is not a command to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and conquer by sheer willpower, although this will be no easy task. Second Peter tells us in chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. The Holy Spirit will equip you to conquer, and you cannot do it by your own strength. Now, we can't, we can't ignore verse 8, which honestly is a little bit of a Debbie Downer in this little section. We read of all this glorious, all these glorious things that are going to happen, and we read this last thing, and it's, and it's, it's, uh, it's not as fun as what's, what's ahead of it. But we can't ignore it. This is where we read of those who will not inherit it, not, those who will not inherit heaven. The cowardly are those who lack endurance in the race. The faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. It says their portion will be in the lake of fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Church, this was us. Apart from the work of Jesus on the cross, this is us. If not for Jesus' work on the cross, we would be content to live apart from him And nothing about the new heaven and new earth would be attractive to us because we would have to dwell with a God who is holy, holy, holy and is the complete opposite of everything we see in verse 8. The new heaven and the new earth is a dwelling place of God. Apart from the gospel, this place would not be a joy for us. But Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life and died on the cross, and his blood covered our sins. Jesus saved us from death. He he saved us from this second death. Jesus should be our ultimate desire because of this. Jesus should be our ultimate desire because he chose us for this inheritance, an inheritance of an eternity with him. The righteousness of Christ was put on us through his death on the cross so that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son. And we can now say that verse 8 does not characterize the life of a true believer. Verse 8 does not characterize the life of the bride of Christ. Those those whose lives are characterized by the things in verse 8 shall not enter into this heavenly city. If your life is characterized by unrepentant sin, you are not an inheritor of this this heavenly city. If your life is characterized by a daily fight with sin, where you see a pattern of victory, and you're constantly fighting and praying that, that, that Jesus would help you overcome your sin, and your attitude toward sin is the hatred of it because Jesus hates sin, then you will inherit this heavenly city. Redeemer, let's live as though Christ is returning soon, because he is. In closing, I want to give you some application for what we've read today. First point of application is to rejoice. These verses 
chapter 21, 1 through 8, these should cause you to rejoice. This should cause you to worship. Worship Jesus who is coming to judge perfectly. Rejoice in his holiness and his righteousness. And rejoice in the fact that he has made us righteous and holy in the sight of our God. Worship the one who has prepared a place for us, his bride. Rejoice in his preparing us. Rejoice in how we're being prepared now through trials and sanctification and practical obedience. Rejoice that Jesus' victory is your victory. Rejoice in the victory you already have now through him as children. My second point of application today is to persevere in obedience. Redeemer, live as though he is coming back soon. Live a life of obedience. Obey the words of the one who is perfect in judgment and righteousness. Prepare yourself as a bride and adorn yourself with the good works and righteous deeds that we see the church put on in Revelation. Know that his words are trustworthy and true. And obey his words because Jesus has made heaven as your reward. My third point is to proclaim the truth of this book. Proclaim that our God is perfect and holy and judges perfectly and He alone can save you. Proclaim that our Christ is coming back one day and that you know the outcome is victory for those in Christ and those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. When someone is suffering, tell them the good news of the Bible. Tell them the gospel. But you can also encourage people through revelation. I've had the opportunity in studying this, which I've had the privilege of studying this text for about a, two months now, compared to where Phil gets a week, so I've prepared. Uh, I've had the opportunity over the last few months to encourage people through the return of Christ. When someone is suffering, I can tell them, you can rejoice and have peace in the fact that one day Christ is coming back to make all things new. There will be no more suffering, no more death, no more pain. Let the return of Christ excite you and cause you to preach the gospel. We will dwell with God perfectly in paradise and we will worship his face. The light coming from his face, there will be no darkness. Rejoice, proclaim these truths. My last point is to repent and believe. If you're here today and your life is characterized by unrepentant sin, then the return of Christ probably doesn't bring you any comfort. I know when I was a kid uh, and not a believer, I also had a poor understanding of Revelation. I was terrified of the return of Christ. When everything was quiet, I would just be terrified that I had somehow been left on this earth. All I could think about was being condemned to hell and being apart from my family. Now, when I think of the return of Christ, I think of dwelling with God and worshiping with the saints in his victory. This can be your hope. Please repent and believe and make this your heritage. The same Jesus who will one day return to harvest the earth and, and judge sinners the same Jesus who defeated Satan, sin, and death, lived a perfect life and laid it down on a cross. 
in place of our sins because he wants you to know him and trust in him. He wants to save you from the second death that is hell. He wants you to live eternally where there is no pain, no mourning or death. And all things that could possibly cause you heartache or grief will have been eliminated. He wants that to be your heritage. I want that to be your heritage. Here at Redeemer, we want that to be your inheritance. Trust that Jesus is enough to save you. Repent of your sins and be forgiven. And drink of the water of life because it's free.